Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter audio cast. This is volume 11, issues number 43 and 45, which coincide with coronavirus updates number 46 and number 48. As always, I am your host, Dr. M., and it's a beautiful day here in North Carolina, and I hope wherever you find yourself today, it's a lovely day as well. Okay, let's get started. The fourth wave of coronavirus appears to be over in North Carolina. If you had two doses of an mRNA vaccine, you have a very, very, very small risk of a significant hospitalization, almost no chance of death from Delta variant based on statistics overall. Notice that I did not say there is no chance. There are chances, but they're very small, and they tend to be tied to those who have already significant severe comorbid disease, making them at higher risk for any outcome in general. So currently, being unvaccinated now poses the greatest risk factor for a negative outcome. Advancing age and comorbid disease add layers of risk on top of your vaccination status. As always, for the latest numbers, you can go to the newsletter on salisburypediatrics.com or doxmo.com, and you can find them there. There's links to Google and the CDC. We are continuing to see that the Lambda, Gamma, Mu variants are not an issue and likely will not be in the United States as Delta remains outcompeting them. As it stands today, the United States had 44 million known cases and 711,000 deaths as of the writing of this newsletter. There is still no change in the knowledge that more than 80% of the deaths are skewed towards over 55 age group and 94% of all deaths occurred in a person with a comorbid health disease. As with the first newsletter on this topic, keep solace with the fact that there is 99 something chance percent that your survival is there regardless of vaccination. However, mathematically, you now have a 99.9998% chance of survival once vaccinated and the vaccine safety for the mRNA vaccines continues to look good. Why take on the extra risk? I am not sure, but each person has to make their choice and I accept that. Are you in favor of blinded population-based genomic studies to define disease risk? 80% said yes. Are you worried about bad actors in genetic analysis? 70% said yes. These are interesting responses to the questions, and I think both are not unreasonable. I think blinded population-based genomic analyses by artificial intelligence will be very, very useful for understanding future study-related topics of disease like COVID. Because if you can mine genomic data relatively quickly, you can find patterns that could help us identify who should be vaccinated first in the next pandemic. And I think that has a lot of value. Being worried about genomic analysis, I think, is also reasonable because there are a lot of people out there who can take really good quality discovery, scientific or any other, and use it for the wrong purposes, right? So these are always going to be very important questions, and there are going to be regulatory agencies that must follow this research so that we don't end up with bad actors. All right, let's move on to the quick hits. Number one, breastfeeding is passing passive IgG and IgA antibodies against SARS-2 to the newborn after maternal infection that is natural, as well as post-vaccination. This is a small 22-mother study that showed peak antibody levels 10 days after the second vaccine dose, which is expected based on plasma levels for all vaccine all vaccinees and their responses. 
The article was uh, Valcarce, V-A-L-C-A-R-C-E et al. 2021. How long these antibodies persist and how well they protect remains to be studied. Anecdotally, though, we have had many COVID-positive mothers deliver in our hospital locally. No mother-to-child transmission has occurred to date, to my knowledge. Thus, it's highly likely that natural infection and vaccine alike are useful for disease prevention for a few months, at least for the newborn. Number two. With children rarely falling severely ill to SARS-CoV-2, or excuse me, SARS-2-CoV-19, the question remains as to why some are dying and with incredible inflammation when they do. 480 children nationally have succumbed to the virus since the pandemic started. It leads to the hypothesis of genetic immune mutations allowing for an overactive immune response or an underactive viral killing mechanism or a combination of both. We've already discussed the work of doctors Fasano and Behrens in previous newsletters pointing to intestinal dysbiosis and mutations in repressing cell immune signals like CXCL9. Now we see a case report in the journal Nature. Quote, among children, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2 infections are typically mild. Here, we describe the case of a 3.5-year-old girl with an unusually severe presentation of coronavirus disease. The child had an autoinflammatory disorder of unknown etiology, which has been treated using prednisone and methotrexate, and her parents were half-cousins of Turkish descent. After five days of nonspecific viral infection symptoms, tonic-clonic seizures occurred, followed by acute cardiac insufficiency, multi-organ insufficiency, and ultimately death. TRIO exome sequencing identified a homozygous splice variant in the gene TBK1 and a homozygous missense variant in the gene TNFRSF13B. Heterozygous deleterious variants in the TBK1 gene have been associated with severe COVID-19, and the variant in the TNFR gene has been associated with common variable immune deficiency. We suggest that the identified variants, the autoimmune disorder or autoinflammatory disorder and its treatment or a combination of these factors probably predisposed to lethal COVID-19 in this present case. This is from Schmidt et al. 2021. As time progresses, I suspect that most infectious diseases that kill children will be isolated to an understanding that there's a genetic immune weakness and that that pathway leads to death when coupled to lifestyle triggers of immune inflammation, which we have discussed for years. I think the genetic defense in the MAC complex uh, of the complement cascade of immune activity and the death from meningococcal disease is an example of this. Time will answer all of these previously tragic unknowns. Number three, new antiviral pill may be on the horizon. Malnupiravir is a drug that induces mutations in the virus's genome, causing an inability of the SARS-2 virus to replicate effectively. Phase two trials showed a large reduction in viral identification by testing and treated patients. This is from Fisher et al. 2021. Now there are reports from Merck that the drug in phase three trials is cutting death rates in half for hospitalized patients. This, if proven true, will be very welcome news as there are really no high-quality treatments available for reducing death at this point. While this drug may or may not pan out, and I truly hope that the data is true, one thing is for sure. Changing your lifestyle choices will dramatically reduce all-cause mortality over time, and vaccination cuts death risk even better than any drug ever will. Number four. 
Unfortunately, unfortunately, almost one-third of the U.S. has had natural infection. Why is that not being discussed in a positive way for immunity moving forward? In a well-written opinion piece in the British Medical Journal, Jennifer Block raises many important questions regarding the illogical approach the United States has taken regarding individuals with natural immunity. It is worth your time to read the whole piece. She asks very important questions. Why aren't we counting natural infection like a vaccine or at the minimum offer one dose of mRNA vaccine three months post illness for full immunity comparable to no illness and two vaccines? The data clearly supports this truth. Europe and Israel are, are using much more logical approaches to these questions. Here are a few excerpts from the piece. Quote, as more U.S. employers, local governments, and educational institutions issue vaccine mandates that make no exception for those who have had COVID-19, questions remain about the science and ethics of treating this group of people as equally vulnerable to the virus or as equally threatened to those vulnerable to COVID-19, and to what extent politics has played a role. But the studies kept coming. A National Institutes of Health study funded um, from the Hoya Institute for immunology found durable immune responses in 95% of 200 participants up to eight months after infection. One of the largest studies to date published in Science in February of 2021 found that although antibodies declined over eight months, memory B cells increased over time, and the half-life of memory CD8 and CD4 T cells suggested a steady presence. In Israel, researchers accessed a database of the entire population to compare the efficacy of vaccination with previous infection and found nearly identical numbers. Our results questioned the need to vaccinate previously infected individuals. They concluded, quote, President Biden left no room for those questioning the public health necessity of personal benefit or personal benefit of vaccinating people who have had COVID-19 already. We have a pandemic because of the unvaccinated. So get vaccinated if you haven't. You're not nearly as smart as I said you were. That's a quote from President Biden. Jennifer Block goes on to state, a large study in the UK and another that surveyed people internationally found that among people with a history of SARS-CoV-2 infection experienced greater rates of side effects after vaccination. Among 2,000 people who completed an online survey after vaccination, those with a history of COVID-19 were 54 percent more likely to experience a severe side effect that required hospital care. Again, this is from Jennifer Block, 2021. Read the last paragraph as well. Very informative. For me, this is an excellent discussion. Again, it puts the federal messaging in a bad light. Why are we not following the logic of good science as stated in this piece and all the published data present since the beginning of the pandemic? Why the rigid approach that alienates a large swath of intelligent Americans? I have seen many people who are infected with natural COVID have really bad reaction to dose number two. This entire process of vaccination immunity, immunity understanding needs to be reassessed, lest the federal government and the CDC lose even more credibility than they already have. Science doesn't lie. It just improves upon itself until answers become more clear. Politics is a whole different animal altogether. I can't state this clearly enough. The whole vaccination issue in the United States is just a, a, a just a nightmare of epic proportions when we think about how poor the messaging has been all the way to the beginning. And now here we are 20 months in and they're still following these same rigid guidelines that don't really make sense. And if you have half a brain, you're sitting here going, why do I need all this vaccination to get on an airplane since I've already had COVID and survived? And I agree with you. Unfortunately, 
we have politics. Number five, boots on the ground. No increased incidence of multi-inflammatory syndrome or deaths in children noted by my friends in Charlotte, Charlottesville, Raleigh, and Philadelphia. There are many more cases in children, which is expected with a more infectious viral variant. Adult disease continues to be mostly in unvaccinated individuals with a comorbidity or vaccinated individuals over 65 with comorbid disease. The theme of inflammation and age continues to be true. Number six, the case for universal boosters. The authors write, the primary objective of COVID-19 vaccines is to protect against severe illness rather than infection. And multiple well-designed studies have found sustained vaccine effectiveness against severe COVID-19 for most adults. One large UK study published as a preprint using a case control design based on PCR results showed that very high levels of protection against severe disease continued beyond five months after vaccination, especially among people who have no serious underlying conditions. This comes to us from Scott et al. 2021. This is another well thought through and written article that is worth your time to read in its entirety. The case for universal boosting has never made sense to me and again seems politically driven and not based on sound science. The boosters make complete sense for at-risk groups and better yet, why don't we send this vaccine to places in the world where they don't have any vaccine and we could hopefully slow down the spread of the virus to unvaccinated people. I don't know, it just seems logical to me, but I'm not in the power position. Number seven. A nice article in the conversation by Jessica Bernard on the effects of SARS-2 on the brain can be found at this link. Go to the newsletter uh, site at salisburypediatrics.com or www.doxmo.com. It goes through much of the data that I've already presented on brain tissue loss and what it means. Number eight, in an interesting study looking at predictions of reinfection in the COVID epidemic, excuse me, COVID endemic state of living, the author stated, quote, these data provided a means to estimate profiles of a typical antibody decline and probabilities of reinfection over time under endemic conditions. Reinfection by SARS-CoV-2 under endemic conditions would likely occur between three months and 5.1 years after peak antibody response with a median of 16 months. This protection is less than half the duration revealed for the endemic coronavirus circulating among humans. For SARS-CoV-1, five, to 95% quintiles were four months and six years, whereas 95% quintiles were for MERS COVID were inconsistent by data set. This comes to us from Townsend et al. in 2021. Okay, although this is predictive modeling, it is likely in line with what we will see as circulating common cold coronaviruses are able to reinfect people with relative ease and frequency. Thus, as has been said many times, we need to get busy living with this virus and life in general. My only response to this data set is this. If, and likely true, SARS-CoV-19 is here forever, we have only two really good choices moving forward. Get vaccinated and practice basic lifestyle choices that are pro-longevity, which we have discussed forever. I do fear that many Americans will not follow number two at all, and that, as with the flu, we will see many extra deaths annually from COVID for centuries to come. Number nine, we have known for 18 months now that kids are significantly lower risk for hospitalization and death. 710,000 deaths in older populations compared to 480 children. Why? As I stated up in number one, we have posited for a long time that there is early recognition and killing based on detected antibodies in children as well as the reduced inflammatory burden of children because of age. 
Now we see a nice mechanistic paper in Nature pointing to an increased ability to see and kill the virus at the earliest stages in the nose and respiratory tree. This is a really cool paper. Quote, children have reduced severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, infection rates, and a substantially lower risk for developing severe coronavirus disease 2019 compared with adults. However, the molecular mechanisms underlying protection in younger age groups remain unknown. Here we characterize a single-cell transcriptional landscape in the upper airways of SARS-CoV-2 negative and age-matched SARS-CoV-2 positive children in corresponding samples from adults covering the age range from four weeks to 77 years. Children displayed higher basal expression of relevant pattern recognition receptors, such as MDA5 and RIG1, in upper airway epithelial cells, macrophages, and dendritic cells, resulting in stronger innate antiviral responses upon SARS-CoV-2 infection than in adults. We further detected distinct immune cell subpopulations, including KLRC1 cytotoxic T cells and a CD8 positive T cell population with a memory phenotype occurring predominantly in children. Our study provides evidence that the airway immune cells of children are primed for virus sensing, resulting in stronger early innate antiviral response to SARS-CoV-2 infection than in adults. This comes to us from Lasky et al. 2021. This data and all the data given to date has to be part of the calculus by any parent's decision regarding their younglings moving forward. It is very clear that bad outcomes in children is exceedingly rare and based on the science above because they are much better at seeing the virus and killing the virus relatively quickly. Very different than in adults. However, as stated earlier, there have been 480 deaths and then another subset of kids who have long COVID and other problems. So this is not zero. So all these things have to be taken into account as you move forward with all of your calculus in the next age group between zero and 12 years of age. Okay, let's look at some work that I had talked about way long ago in the pandemic. What did Sweden do and how did they do it and how did it pan out? So two years later almost, Sweden, the country that went rogue compared to the rest of Europe and the world to some extent, they had different beliefs and a different societal view on the pandemic. As with everything these days, many applauded them at the same time as many derided them. But how did they fare overall? Recap of their initial policy decisions. Number one, they had no lockdown. Number two, businesses remained open. Number three, kids went to school with no masks. Number four, voluntary vaccine uptake which actually turned out to be north of 80% of the population. When cases spiked heavily in late 2020, they implemented some minor business closures, limited customers' volume indoors, and implemented voluntary mask use on public transportation. They never had prolonged school closure affecting millions of children stunting their mental and physical growth. They never had massive economic damage from prolonged business closures. Simply put, they took a moderate approach and let us look at some numbers. We're going to do this in populations, cases, and deaths. So the first number will be population, the second number will be cases, and the third number will be deaths for each country. So for Belgium, the population was 11,560,000, cases 1,258,688, and deaths 25,655. Finland had 5.5 million people, 145,000 cases, and 1,000 deaths. Norway had 5.5 million people, 192,000 cases, 871 deaths. Sweden had 10.5 million cases, uh, 1,157,000 uh, 1, cases. Excuse me, they have 10 million and a half people, 1,157,000 cases, and 14,900 deaths. Germany had 83 million people, 4,297 
so excuse me, 4,297,000 cases and 94,000 deaths. The United States, in comparison, had 329.5 million people, 44 million cases and 710,000 deaths. And the United Kingdom had 67 million people, 8 million cases, 137, almost 138,000 deaths. So based on these numbers, Sweden should have had 22,000 deaths based on the U.S. numbers if all things were equal, but they only had 13,700, or 92% of the Swedish deaths were over 65 years of age compared to 77% of the U.S. deaths being over 65. So you can see right there the raw numbers where the Swedish deaths that did occur, most of them occurred in a much older population, whereas in the United States they occurred in a much younger population comparatively, again, owing to our unfitness as a society based on our antecedent risk factors of disease that cause chronicity like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and high blood pressure. Looking at the raw statistics, we see that Sweden fared significantly less well than their direct neighbor, Finland and Norway, but much better than the United Kingdom, the U.S., and Belgium, and in line with Germany. All these countries practice significantly more draconian pandemic mitigation measures, such as full lockdown, school closures, and masking policies. So for me, the take-home point that I derive from all this data is more about comorbid disease and fitness than viral illness per se. The U.S. had 42% obesity rate, the U.K. 31%, Sweden 19%, Finland 23%, Norway 22%, Belgium 21%, Germany 25%. Worsening death rates mostly followed along with obesity patterns and prevalence with some mild outliers. Sweden's experiment mostly worked for them where it likely would have been a much bigger disaster for countries like the U.S. where we have such a high comorbid risk. However, the biggest mistake that the United States has to learn from is its closure of, school, of schools nationwide. Europe, by and large, kept schools open all pandemic long, while we didn't. Yet we clearly have no data to show a shred of benefit for this decision. However, we have reams of data to show how poorly our children fared during the prolonged school lockdown. And we've gone through this many times in this newsletter. The mantra has to be never again. We can hem and haw all day long about death risk and some of these measures as implemented for society at large. But the effect on children's health is an absolute net negative. We have to stop thinking of things in terms of, you know, protecting one person and then sacrificing all the children in the process. It just makes little to no sense. And I applaud Europe for taking a very different approach. Again, we come to a 30,000-foot view of the pandemic as it exists today. The greatest risk for a bad outcome is to not be vaccinated now. The greatest risk pre-vaccine and second greatest risk now is to be chronically unwell with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure as clearly demonstrated by the data. Thus, we sit here again wondering why the messaging all pandemic long has been focused on viral avoidance, which was difficult to do with alpha, let alone delta. Why did the CDC and the WHO not focus on well, excuse me, focus as well on self-care for disease prevention and control. Why did everyone in the government and media bury the COVID origin story sowing more distrust? There are a lot of intelligent people out there who can run statistics like I just did and come up with a reasonable calculus that the risk of death is minimal with or without a vaccine. If the messaging had been about all of these logical realities, would people have trusted the CDC more? And would we have had a better vaccine uptake like Sweden at over 80%? Me personally, I think the answer to this is likely yes. I think that this pandemic has taught me one great lesson. Being truthful in all things will invariably lead to better compliance with good policy. 
I, for one, remain mystified by the continued lack of coverage of healthy lifestyle decisions that could reduce risk. There are anti-smoking campaigns of the 80s for sugar and processed food poisons. Where are the get out and exercise campaigns now? Where are the mental health campaigns now, right? Where are we spending the time working on helping educate people on the risks of their disease and demise? Okay, these are huge questions that we have to spend time thinking about in the near future so we don't repeat the same mistakes again. Okay, that completes issue number 43. Now we're going to move on to issue number 45, which coincides with coronavirus update number 47. If you're out walking right now while you're listening to this, it's a good time to stop, pause, bend over, stretch your legs, really think positively about your existence while we're about to get into step number two of this audio cast or the second half. Okay, so stretch over, take a deep breath. (sighs) All right, that sounds good. Here we go. All right, this part I'm just going to quickly run through the beginning stuff a little bit, just the statistics. As it stands today, as the writing of this audio cast newsletter, the United States had 45.4 million known cases and 736,000 deaths. There's a significant downtick in the deaths over the previous two-week cycles as case volume has plummeted as wave four is sort of disappearing. So according to the American Medical Association, 96% of medical doctors have received a COVID vaccine nationally. That says a lot about the safety of this vaccine. Physicians in general are loath to receive interventions that have not been well studied for safety as we see the train wrecks of intervention failures in our patients. This information should really help those that have been sent down the wrong path by the poor political messaging around vaccination nationally. If you are over 18 years of age, please consider vaccinating if you have not already done so. This decision could still save your life. Comorbidity risk reassessed 20 months into the pandemic. From Dr. Antos and colleagues, quote, a total of 39,451 COVID-19 deaths were identified from four states that had comorbidity data, including Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and New York. 92.5% of those COVID-19 deaths were associated with a pre-existing comorbidity. The risk of mortality associated with at least one comorbidity was 1,113 times higher than those with no comorbidity. The comparative analysis identified nine comorbidities with odds ratios of up to 35 times higher than no comorbidities. Of them, the top four comorbidities were hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and chronic kidney disease. Interestingly, lung disease added only a modest increased risk. This comes from Antos et al. 2021. So again, for me, the common theme here remains that what makes you inflamed and prone to disease puts you at risk for death and hospitalization from SARS-2. The main drive of these disorders remains poor lifestyle decisions over time. Poor quality attrition is number one, closely followed on by unremitting mental stress, although it's easily, you could easily state that it's the other way around. I don't know. In this case, I stick that both of them suck. Stop eating poorly and really try and learn to help control the mental stress of the perspective you see yourself in. Sloth and chemical exposure and toxic loads or of a lesser volume over a chronic time period are also driving immunometabolic inflammatory dysfunction. As SARS-2 is now endemic, it is hard to predict the future. However, it is highly likely that those among us that practice poor quality lifestyle actions on a prolonged basis will suffer sooner or later with COVID as we age. Age seems to be the defining factor in risk for many reasons. One, as we age, our immune system weakens. Two, vaccine responses weaken as we age. Three, 
we are inflamed for longer increasing the risk of comorbid disease. Four, bad luck happens over time with other illnesses or accidents that make us vulnerable to infection. Thus, the only real take-home to all of his data at this point is as follows. Vaccinate with at least two doses if you've never been infected or one dose if you were previously naturally infected. Consider a booster shot based on comorbid risk and age. If you are over 65, you have one of these comorbid diseases, you really want to think about getting a booster shot. Number three, work very hard to reduce all antecedent triggers for inflammation as discussed ad nauseum in this newsletter. Four, make sure to take all of your medicines on a regular basis to keep inflammation to a minimum. Okay, let's move on to the quick hits. Number one, the vaccines work against hospitalization and death despite Delta's ferocity. Quote, among U.S. adults without immunocompromised conditions, vaccine effectiveness against COVID-19 hospitalization during March 11 to August 15th of this year, 2021, was higher for Moderna vaccine, 93% than Pfizer-BioNTech, 88%, and the Janssen vaccine, 71%. This comes from the CDC. The real point here is that the variants will be controlled by the vaccines unless there is a full key shift in the spike protein, which is exceedingly unlikely to happen. Thus, for every American, there is a 7 to 12% chance of a negative breakthrough event that could require hospitalization if you had Moderna or Pfizer, respectively. The preponderance of these breakthroughs that end up in the hospital will occur in the same demographic groups that were at risk uh, pre-vaccine. Again, these are the people over 65 with comorbid disease like obesity, coronary vascular disease, and diabetes, or people that have immune suppressed significantly from drugs or a disease. Everyone else in general should do very well post-vaccination. The natural ability of the immune system to handle the mild antigenic changes in SARS-2 variants is very well on display right now. Our immune reactions are beautiful to witness. I'm going to reread a little bit of a section from a few weeks ago because of its significance here based on what I just stated. When you take a deeper dive into the technical world of B-cell memory and therefore lasting protection post-vaccine or natural illness, once you have seen the virus, RNA protein fragment as either the spike protein fragment from the mRNA vaccine or chopped up portions of the natural virus when you get sick, your immune system will present these sequences to the B cell in an elegant way called antigen presentation that will develop a subspecies of B cell called the memory B cell, which has the distinctive ability to be quiescent and long-lived in our bone marrow after the SARS-2 virus is dead and gone. The entire purpose of this long-lived memory B cell is to have the ability to re-recognize the SARS-2 virus if you see it again. Then, rapidly, the RNA sequence recognition based on this memory allows for immediate development of neutralizing antibodies that squash the SARS-2 virus rapidly the next time around. What about the variants? We know that the SARS-2 virus mutates at a modest pace. If the SARS-2 RNA has changed its structure during a mutation, let's say from alpha to delta. Does the memory B cell still have the immune ability or do we lose immune recognition? Here comes the beauty of the human immune system. Do you remember the stories of people getting super swollen lymph nodes in the armpit of the vaccinated arm? This was a sign that the T and B cells were migrating to the local lymph nodes of the armpit to exchange genetic material information in preparation for memory B cell development. In the germinal center of these lymph nodes, the antigenic material, the protein fragments of the virus, they get exchanged and understood immunologically in this location. 
One phase of this activity is critical. These B cells will go through multiple divisions deeper in the germinal cell of the lymph node. Think of rings of a tree moving closer to the center. With each division, the B cell adds a mutation to the B cell receptor, which mirrors the virus when minor alterations and mutations occur in the virus. This is an anticipation of the virus's ability to mutate as well. Think about this. Our immune system's evolution coincided with the knowledge that pathogens will mutate as well over time, so we copy them and do the same thing. This process is called somatic hypermutation, whereby the B cells have affinity maturation that allow them to specialize to viral or pathogen structures for future recognition. There are two different types that predominate over time. The basic memory B cell, which has a polyreactive memory to a pathogen, allows for a lot of flexibility in pathogen mutation. The long-lived plasma cell is more high-affinity B cell that has a more tightly bound antigen recognition and therefore aggressive antibody targeting to specific previously seen virus. So the, the long-lived plasma cell, because it has a more tightly bound affinity, it doesn't have the ability to pick up as much of the different variants, but when it does, it picks it up very aggressively. Whereas the basic memory B cell has a little bit more ability to see different variants, but is not as strong. So therefore, memory B cells hide in tonsils, lymph nodes, spleen, bone marrow, and in the bloodstream, plotting their next attack like a hidden snake in the off chance that a SARS-2 virus, or pick your Greek letter of a mutation variant, comes to play. The human B cell variants are already poised to get a head start at the viral killing game. It is a beautiful thing, and the major reason behind my belief that we are okay over time with SARS-2 if we've been either vaccinated or natural disease and are practicing high-quality living standard decisions that reduce the big comorbid diseases. Okay, moving on. Quick hit number two. Quote, COVID-19 presentation varies widely between individuals, ranging from asymptomatic to life-threatening infection. Several host and viral factors have been shown to influence disease penetrance and severity. In addition, the infectious disease, or excuse me, the infectious dose has also been speculated to have a role. Dabish et al. show in SARS-CoV-2 challenge study of 16 synoma, this is a tough one, synomalgus macaques that the infectious dose indeed influences symptom development and seroconversion. They used aerosolized virus at different concentrations and found that low doses could lead to seroconversion of virus replication in the respiratory tract without symptom development, such as fever whereas high doses produced fever, which suggests that low infectious doses might be associated with asymptomatic infection, end quote. That comes from Hoffer J. 2021. This is a really important study. It was long suspected that dose and time of exposure were the major risk factors for a bad outcome from SARS-2. Now we have concrete data to the affirmative. Super spreaders in a one-hour church or meeting event could cause significant disease burden, whereas people passing you on the street are not the issue. Yet again, we see signs proving how ridiculous the current masking rules are for indoor dining where a mask is required to walk in or go to the bathroom, but sitting without a mask while dining is a low risk. This policy never made sense and still does not. For more on the poor state of the CDC mask guidance, here is a great opinion piece in the Washington Post by Joseph Allen. He states, quote, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's recommendations for mask wearing in areas of substantial or high spread of COVID-19 have resulted in many businesses and universities requiring everyone to wear masks indoors. Even if everyone is vaccinated, this makes no sense. Not only does it rely on flawed metrics to estimate the impact of community spread, but also ignores all the evidence vaccines work to limit the spread of the virus, end quote. 
Common sense is being hidden by political agendas everywhere, unfortunately. It's really annoying, but it is what it is. Number three, there was a significant reduction in the routine childhood vaccination during the pandemic due to lost visits, De Silva et al. 2021. This is a potential recipe for a resurgence of some of these other previously controlled infections. If your child is behind on any routine vaccines of childhood, please get them caught up so we can keep herd immunity strong for things like measles, which would be a nightmare to come back. Number four, ZDog MD has a great video with Monica Gandhi on COVID and many other related topics. I highly recommend this video if you want to listen to it or, or watch it. You can get it by the link in SalisburyPDFs.com or Doxmo.com. They discuss the ridiculousness and messaging that occurred throughout the pandemic, which, again, you know how I feel about all this. They go into the reality that natural immunity is useful, and there's very good science behind T and B cell activity in those who had natural infection. They discuss the massive benefits for adults being vaccinated and the fact that Delta and other variants are not causing major issues to the vaccinated. Dr. Gandhi makes a clear case for how the CDC should be publishing the demographics of the vaccine breakthrough deaths and hospitalizations in order to prioritize vaccine boosters based on need and not willy-nilly executive CDC orders without much logic or President Biden's belief in what he thinks we should be doing. Couldn't agree with her more. The world still needs vaccine, and the hotbeds of attack in foreign nations are where the variants have come from, making blanket U.S. booster statements illogical. The messaging has undermined the entire vaccine effort at the highest levels of government. They discuss so much more regarding what the media and policymakers have completely botched throughout the pandemic, leading to the U.S. being one of the worst vaccine adopters globally, despite the best vaccines and having the best access to them. What a mess of epic proportions. I mean, this is just this unconscionable to think that we're in this place, considering all of the great scientists we have and the ability to get this data out there. It's like politics ruins so much. It's just crazy. All right, number five. Quote, we described three adolescent and young adult patients who had confirmed or probable COVID-19 infections early on during the pandemic and referred to the evaluation at the chronic fatigue clinic at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. All patients reported orthostatic intolerance symptoms within the first two weeks of illness, and 10-minute passive standing tests were consistent with postural tachycardia syndrome after six months of illness. All three patients met criteria for MECFS, so there's chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalitis. Clinical features of interest include strong histories of allergies in all three patients, two of whom had elevations of plasma histamine levels. Each demonstrated limitations in symptom-free range of motion and, limb, and limbs and spine, and two presented with pathological Hoffman's reflexes. These comorbid features have been reported in adolescents and young adults with CFS, Petrachic et al., and this is 2021. This is a case series that is starting to shed some light on the after effects of COVID-19 in a subset of adolescents that developed chronic fatigue-like symptoms. They have some features physically and by serum testing that are similar to MECFS. Histamine levels greater than 1.8, usually in the 3 to 4 range, were noted. This is based on allergic phenotype found here as well. The positive Hoffman sign and a decreased range of motion of the upper extremities is also consistent with chronic fatigue syndrome. A Hoffman sign is performed when the provider snaps or flicks the nail on the middle or fourth finger and elicits a reflex where the thumb and the first finger flex together. Long COVID is likely to be chronic fatigue syndrome triggered by SARS-2 and treated with treatment will follow suit as is done in CFS patients. There will be an interesting podcast coming up where I interview uh, Dr. Paul 
Peter Rowe, excuse me, Dr. Peter Rowe from Johns Hopkins University and this clinic. He's a brilliant man, and we have a very interesting conversation about chronic fatigue syndrome, long COVID, and how to treat it. Okay, quick hit number six. Quote, following a peak day of 15 to 28 days post-infection, the IgG antibody response and plasma neutralizing titers gradually decreased over time but stabilized after six months. Plasma neutralizing activity against G614 was still detected in 87% of the patients at 6 to 15 months compared to G614. The median neutralizing titers against beta, gamma, delta variants in plasma collected at early 15 to 103 days and late 9 to 15 months convalescence were 16 to 8-fold lower, respectively. SARS-CoV-2 specific memory B and T cells reached a peak at three to six months and persisted in the majority of patients for at least up to 15 months, although a significant decrease in specific T sources was observed between six and 15 months. This comes from Marcotte et al., 2021. So this is just more data on post-natural infection immunity that persists for much longer than reported by some sources. Number seven, extension of the interval between vaccine doses for BNT162B2 mRNA vaccine was introduced in the UK to accelerate population coverage with a single dose. At this time, trial data was lacking, and we addressed this in the study of UK healthcare workers. The first vaccine dose induced protection from infection from the circulating alpha B1.1.7 variant over several weeks. In a sub-study of 589 individuals, we show that this single dose induces SARS-CoV-2 neutralizing antibody responses and a sustained B and T cell response to spike protein. Neutralizing antibody levels were higher after the extended dosing interval, 6 to 14 weeks, compared to the conventional 3 to 4 week regimen, accompanied by enrichment of CD4 positive T cells expressed IL-2. Prior SARS-CoV-2 infection amplified and accelerated that response. These data on dynamic cellular and human responses indicate that extension of the dosing interval is an effective and immunological, immunogenic, excuse me, protocol. It's come to us, end quote, from Payne et al. 2021. Also, from the Institut National de Santé Publique de Quebec, states that the best post-vaccination antibody response was when the second dose was delayed by up to 16 weeks. For example, the study revealed that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine was 47% effective at preventing infections when the second dose was given three to four weeks after the first, as recommended by the manufacturer. But that efficacy jumped to 92% when the second dose was administered at least 16 weeks after the first. This comes to us from Sarah Brin J, 2021. So here we find further high-quality data that we should be extending the dosage range between two-dose regimens for mRNA vaccines. Again, we see study data showing more robust response for those previously infected and recovered plus one vaccine dose. We all need to be consumers of data before making choice on dosing regimens that are blindly being stuck to despite better data globally. The goal is to prevent hospitalization and death, not all illness, which is impossible. Therefore, we need to iterate protocols for max antibody responses from vaccination with or without prior infection. Bottom line, folks, layer your protection. Get vaccinated, eat well, sleep well, do all those wonderful things that happen in life. Section two, you can see this on the newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com. Interesting visual on the CDC webpage showing vaccination versus unvaccinated death risk during the Delta surge. All things being equal, being unvaccinated carries an 11x death risk. It's a lot higher risk. So 11x. So when you think about all this data, 
yet again, I think the take-home point for me is the good news is we're out of wave four and now hopefully getting back to a normal lifestyle around the country, especially in the South where we have less draconian rules and regulations going on in other parts of the country. But again, most importantly, we need to get everyone vaccinated and we need to have everyone who at least had illness before get one dose. We want everyone to practice high quality lifestyle, eat well, sleep well, do all those wonderful things and, you know, just keep ourselves in the best shape we can. So that's the end. That concludes uh, my reading of episodes uh, 43 and 45, with co- which correspond with coronavirus updates number 46 and 47. So I hope you enjoyed this audio cast and you're having a great day. I hope the rest of your week is fabulous. And remember to always hug those kids. Okay, for the disclaimer. The, edge, the information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.